Amen. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you to the worship team as well. We can go ahead and give them a hand just for uh, leading us. Appreciate them very much. Also appreciate them just letting me like hang out and play guitar with them this week. That was super fun. Um, well, good morning. I am honored to be uh, preaching to you today from God's Word. Uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so I encourage you to turn or scroll there now if you're using a device. Um, be in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about what if the resurrection is real. Um, so now it's been a week since we gathered together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together. And if you're anything like me, sort of the glimmer and shine and uh, just sunniness of Easter Sunday is already sort of in the rearview mirror. Right now our thoughts kind of gravitate towards uh, summertime, barbecues, parties, uh, surviving these last few weeks of school, amen and amen, right? But uh, this morning we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15 the importance of the resurrection, that it's, it's not just a part of our faith, it's not just a day, it's not just a day on the calendar, it's the foundation of our faith. It's not just part of the gospel, it's at the very center of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In Christ we, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as, in, uh, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each according to his own order. Christ is the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Paul continues, otherwise, what do we mean by people being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame." Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Um, God, that is a double-edged sword that cuts to the very heart of our intentions. It exposes our, our needs. It exposes our desires, our wants. God, it weighs every action. And God, before your holiness, we are utterly undone. Um, God, apart from your son Jesus and apart from his resurrection, our cry would simply be, woe is me with the prophet Isaiah. 
But instead, God, you've given us your son, so we thank you for the gift of the gospel that you would send your son to live the perfect life, to die in our place, and to conquer death. So God, I pray now that as we, as we sit under your word, myself included, God, would you speak? Would you move me out of the way? Um, God, would you speak clearly to your people this morning? Would you edify and encourage those that are, that are feeling weary, that are feeling discouraged? God, would you challenge those of us who need to be uh, who need to have our pride in check this morning. Um, God, and if there are those that, that do not know you, God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning and that you would bring them into a saving relationship with you. So God, we pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So we're talking about the resurrection. And what better... Uh, intro than to talk about philosophy for a second. Now, um, so during the 1700s, a German philosopher by the name of Gotthold Lessing began to ask the question that philosophers had already been asking for years. How can we know that what we know is actually true? It's absolutely true. Philosophers will often put it this way. How do we know which information can be accepted with justified belief and which information is just a, a truth claim? It's just an opinion. Right? Even today, we see the importance of being able to discern truth from falsehood. The very fact that we have vocabulary for things such as fake news proves that point abundantly. Right? So Lessing entered this conversation with a focus on the Christian faith and arrived at this conclusion. He said, okay, so you, over here, you have this sort of lower level of truth. You have these historical claims, especially about Jesus. He said he was God. I believe that. He said he rose from the dead. Uh, his disciples said that. I believe that. But over here... On the other side, we have what's absolutely true, the true truth, if you will. This is, uh, especially with the, the system of rationalism, saying, okay, it, it's as sure as two plus two equals four. I'm, I have absolute certainty with it. And he said, okay, so over here, there's this kind of lower grade of truth. There's a huge ditch. It's, he said, it's a broad, ugly ditch, which I cannot cross. So I can say, yeah, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but I can't have justified belief in that. That's, that's not, it's, it's a lower level truth. And, and we see this sort of, um, doubting the, the resurrection, doubting miracles um, all throughout history, particularly uh, philosophers that followed Lessing, they would, they would particularly attack the, the validity of the resurrection and essentially say, well, the Bible is not trustworthy because it assumes, uh, the, it assumes the existence of miracles. And that's, just, that's outside of the realm of reason. We can't accept that. So, you know, that's where we get this kind of modern idea that, you know, this is a good book, right? If you read something in it and it means something to you, that's wonderful. It has this inner truth, right? But it's, it's on this side of the ditch, right? You can't have any justified belief. And so you can kind of hold uh, your beliefs in one hand and, you know, all of your moral, uh, ethical conclusions, all of your, your life choices, they can be on the other side. Because this over here, right, this is just, it's, it's just not quite true truth, right? And we see this sort of uh, mentality to doubt miracles and even the resurrection at play in Jesus' time. When he encounters the Sadducees, they, they doubt the resurrection, they question him about that. We see ancient philosophers who assume, well, you know, the material world is evil, and so you know, what you really need to do is ascend to the spiritual world, and that's inherently good. And we see it, obviously, in our text today. It's, it seems as though Paul's audience is struggling to overcome some of these ideas. Maybe they're enduring some false teaching, some... Um, people spreading rumors or saying, well, the dead aren't raised, so obviously Christ hasn't been raised. But today, in our text, Paul directly engages those with doubts about the resurrection and asks the question, what if you're right? What if Jesus lived, he died, the end, his bones are somewhere in the Middle East right now, we just can't find them. What, where would that leave us, right? And so if you're here this morning, or you're watching online, maybe you have doubts, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you say, you know, I'm just a little skeptical about this whole thing. I want you to see how the Bible addresses those questions. Because the Bible doesn't 
uh, uh, shy away from our questions. In fact, Paul leans in and says, all right, what if you're right? What if the resurrection isn't real? But friends, as we read, we're going to see a far more pressing question, which is, if the resurrection is real, and the Bible says it is, what else in this book do we need to reckon with? What else in this book could be true? So, first and foremost, we're going to see the importance of believing the resurrection. See that in verses 12 and 19? Let me read those for us again. Now, if Christ has been proclaimed from the dead, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So friends, Paul's argument is simple. If we're to accept that the miracle of raising the dead is, is just too unbelievable, right? We, we just, we can't have a justified belief in that. It's on the other side of the ditch, right? So you can believe that that's nice. It has an internal meaning for you. That's wonderful, right? A lot of uh, um, modern scholars will say, well, you know, Jesus, his resurrection was this event that happened in the hearts of his people, but it didn't really happen. Right, so if we can accept that, okay, that's fine. Um, where, where does that leave us? Well, not even Jesus has been raised from the dead. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Well, so this sermon is pointless, right? And our faith is in vain. So the songs we just sang, that's a lie, right? And we're here, I guess, just out of like obligation. We just like, we like having a ritual and th- that's about it, right? If Christ has not been raised, then let's all just go home, <laughs> right? Uh, the word Paul uses here to mean that our faith would be, uh, would be in vain is, is empty or hollow, right? It's, it's like building our foundation on, on sand rather than the rock, right? To place our faith in a, in a hollow or counterfeit savior in, in, in a Jesus who didn't really conquer death, who didn't really raise from the dead, means that, that when things get real, right? When the rain comes, when the storm comes, our house is on the sand and it's going to be washed away. It's going to be wiped out. And if Christ has not been raised, then our faith has no foundation, right? Jesus may have said some wonderful things. He might have offered some great advice about how to live a good life, how to treat others. But at the end of the day, if he hasn't been raised from the dead, then he's just like every other human being in existence. So to try to remove the resurrection from the Christian faith would be like removing the bottom row of blocks from a Jenga tower. Now, I know some of you are chaotic and like to go for that bottom one, and some of you may even be engineers or really, really, really smart, and you can, ah, oh, yeah, 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 I can figure it out. I saw one the other day, someone like just karate chopped the bottom layer and it somehow stood. But for the rest of us mere mortals, we know that if you try to remove the foundation, what's going to happen? It's going to come toppling down like those Jenga blocks. But friends, the tomb is empty, and so our faith is not Paul goes on to say that if Christ has not been raised, then we're misrepresenting God, right? Their preaching is in vain. If Christ hasn't been raised, then Paul and the apostles are offering false testimony about who God is, about what he says. And you might even think about prosperity preachers today that are preaching health and wealth. You know, if you just donate to my ministry, God will heal you. He'll solve all your problems, right? And we say, oh, their preaching is hollow, right? They're misrepresenting God. They're twisting scripture for their own gain. And we say, that's awful. But Paul says, if we have not, if, if Christ has not been raised, then we're no better than them. Right? Because if we're lying about what God has said, or worse, if God said, I'll raise Jesus from the dead, but then didn't, right, then that somehow makes God a liar. Maybe he's not so good after all. Either way, if Christ has not been raised, the apostles are trading their lives for a lie. 
In fact, that's one of the major evidences in favor of Christianity. You see the early church is thrust into a time of, of discord and, and persecution. You've got the emperor Nero who's burning Christians as lamps for his garden. You've got pagan and Jewish groups alike seeking to imprison or kill Paul and his missionary companions. And so we have to ask the question, if they really didn't believe in the resurrection, why would they do this? Would they really face all of this just for a lie? But Paul says if, that if Christ has not been raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why is that? Well, if there's one thing that's worse than having no hope, it's having a false hope. It's having a hope in something that's hollow. But friends, if the resurrection is true, then that's exactly the case for every person apart from Christ this morning. They have hope only for this life and none for the next. Or, or maybe they have hope for the next, but it's, it's false. It's hollow. It's empty. Paul continues in verse 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So if Christ has not been raised, we're not only wasting our time, we're not only sort of building our lives around this false truth, but our sins are still upon us. Friends, this is why believing in the resurrection is so important. Because if the resurrection of Christ is just a myth, right? It's just this sort of mythical uh, event that happened in the hearts of the disciples. Okay, great. You know, you've, you've demythologized the Bible. You've made it so, yeah, we can, we can believe, you know, he was a good teacher. Go ahead, do what he says. Um, but he's not God, though. He didn't raise from the dead, though. You, you, you can't be sane and believe that. Okay, so if, if we say that, then we may as well put our faith in, in a fictional character like Gandalf or Luke Skywalker, because they're just as able to save us, Right? But it begs the question, why did Jesus have to die and, and be risen again? Right? If, what if, what if he, he just seemed dead, right? And somehow, you know, he climbed out of the tomb and said, wow, that was a close one. Uh, somehow moved this giant stone, somehow passed by these guards or maybe knocked them out, right? And just said, wow, that was a close one. Moving on, like some James Bond movie or something, right? Um, where does that leave us? Right? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, we might say, well, Jesus said he would, right? He said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The disciples later understood that he was talking about his, himself. And so we might say, well, his own prophecies needed to be fulfilled, right? And, and that's true. We might see the psalmist who writes of God's holy one who will not see corruption, who will not be abandoned to Sheol. And we say, okay, yeah, it's to fulfill the scriptures and that's true. But friends, we need to understand that it was our sin that Jesus died for and paid for on that cross. It was my sin and it was your sin. Friends, it was every sinful thought, word or deed that you and I have ever committed, ever will commit, ever will consider committing, ever will think about committing. And the penalty of those sins is both physical and spiritual death. So why did Jesus have to die? Well, the classic movie, The Princess Bride tells us there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is still slightly alive. So if Jesus somehow limped his way out of the tomb, right, you know, Jason Bourne kind of movie or whatever, somehow impossibly survives and says, close one, right, where does that leave us? Well, do our sins leave us mostly dead or all dead? Well, Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin, the payment, the penalty for sin is death. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in trespasses and sins. Our sins leave us as dead, as spiritually, as Lazarus in the tomb, and one day we'll be just as dead as Lazarus in the tomb physically. So a Jesus who never died on our behalf can never save us from the wages of sin. And let's say, okay, so Jesus, he, he dies, he stays dead though. We, we can't have this resurrection nonsense. That makes him just like every other human being in existence. Friends, if death is the result of sin, for Jesus to stay dead means he's still somehow under the power, under the penalty of sin. Right? Maybe we say he wasn't quite as sinless as we were led to believe. Maybe our sins were too great. His sacrifice was somehow insufficient. 
But friends, instead hear these words from Jesus in in Revelation 1. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So friends, the empty tomb is not just an idea, it's not just a a myth, it's not just this, this, uh, yes, it's a crucial doctrine, but it's a statement. Jesus is the living one. He was dead and now he is alive forevermore. It's God's stamp of approval on Jesus' sacrifice in our place. It's the sound of the gavel coming down as God declares us righteous, not guilty. Our debt's paid in full. It's the victory cry that death has no claim on the spotless lamb, and it's a monumental warning to all enemies of the cross. Your days are numbered. I have the keys of death. Is there any enemy who can outrun me, who can escape me? So friends, next we see the result of believing the resurrection, picking back up in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Christ, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each to, in his own order. First, the, uh, first Christ, the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then quoting Psalm 8 here, Paul says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are under subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son himself, Jesus, will be subjected to him, God, who put all things in subjection under him, Jesus. That God may be all in all. This is one of those, those sections where I, I, uh, I like what Peter says. I think it's in 2 Peter 3.16. He says, uh, basically, he's commenting on Paul, and he says he writes these wonderful things, but sometimes it's hard to understand, right? <laughs> like, goodness. Okay, he put things in subjection to him, and then he does this and that. So, anyway. Um, so, Paul makes it clear, just in case there was any, any doubt, right? In, in case we're wondering, okay, well, is the resurrection still on this side of the ditch? He's jumping the ditch. Spoiler alert. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised. Earlier in, in chapter 15, you can read how he points to that the, uh, the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul, he appeared to the apostles, and more than 500 witnesses, most of whom, Paul says, are still alive, and have, though some have fallen asleep. So the, the apostles understood this importance of this eyewitness account, and, and we hold the collection of their accounts. And so Paul is saying, go ahead and ask me, any of these 500 witnesses, what we've seen, Christ is risen from the dead. That's why First John opens with these words, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. That's why Peter, remember Peter who was afraid of a little girl? You know, they asked, do you know Jesus? And he's, he's terrified. No, 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 I don't know Jesus. It's fine. Um, now in, in Acts 4 and 5, after seeing the risen Christ, he's arrested and he's commanded, don't preach about Jesus. And he says twice, we must obey God rather than man, for we cannot help but speak of what we've seen. So this eyewitness account, this this seeing the risen Christ is important. And friends, we have something more sure, Peter later says. We have the Bible. And we hold the the collection of these firsthand accounts in our hands. So if the resurrection is true, what does that mean? how How does that apply to us? Well, verses 20 and 21 tell us that if Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. And that word first fruits is, is used to describe kind of the first part of a harvest. It's like the appetizer that kind of gives you a preview of how good the meal will be. 
right? It's, it's like a preview of the movie or the show, and, you, and it lets you know just kind of what's coming. You see the, these little glimmers, and you're like, oh, boy, I can't wait. Or you're like, that sounds terrible. I'm not going to see it. Right, so, so that, that word first fruits has, has a lot of meanings, but in the Bible, it, it has a deeper meaning. It, it's a first fruits offering was essentially the best and freshest part of the crop. And so it was given to God as a symbol that the whole harvest belongs to God. Right, so that first fruit offering is representative of the whole. So what that means is Romans 6 verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul later says in verse 23, Christ is the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So friends, this means that when you and I are united with the risen Christ, not only in his physical death, but now we're, we're uh, united with him in his physical resurrection. And that's why it was so important that Jesus was raised in the same body he died in. The disciples make this painfully obvious when you talk about Thomas wanting to feel the, the, the hole in his side and feel the nail, the, the nail holes in his hands. Right? Because Jesus is the first fruits, he's the firstborn from the dead, we are united with the risen Christ and not the dead Adam. And one day, God will shake the dust from these weary bodies, and we too will be raised to new life. So Jesus has paid our debt. He's died in our place and raised us to, uh, to, raise us to life, victorious over sin and death. Because Christ is victorious over sin and death, that means that you and I, united with Christ, can be victorious over sin and death. Paul tells us that Jesus is this sort of new Adam he says, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the resurrection of Christ is part of God's plan for undoing the curse of sin brought about by the fall in Genesis 3. Right? God warns Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree, and if you do, you will surely die. Yet now in Christ, you and I will instead surely be raised to life on the last day. I love how Paul describes the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the life uh, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So friends, the resurrection is a new beginning. It's almost as if God is yet again speaking into the darkness and breathing life into the dust through Christ. And this all begins with this new Adam. We know that the Adam failed to protect his wife from the serpent. And he could have driven the serpent out. He could have spoken up. He could have exercised dominion over creation, which was his job. He could have seen the serpent trying to deceive his wife and killed it on the spot. I'm a fan of that, right? Like, oh, I don't know what snake meat tastes like, but we're going to find out today, right? Um, but instead, he watched passively, and it just says, and, and then she gave some to Adam, who was with her. So the whole time, he's just watching this happen and just like, yeah, I don't know, just being passive. But here we see that God makes this promise in Genesis 3 that one day Eve's offspring will crush the head of the serpent. And that's exactly what we see in our text today in verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so now it's not just the serpent. There's all these other enemies. And Jesus is like, all right, come on, get under here. Ready to go? Under the foot. Here we go. So now, Jesus is exercising dominion over every rebel power, and his resurrection is leading to the resolution of all things. Paul quotes Psalm 8 here to describe how, how God's intention for mankind was to bring him glory and ultimately to, to exercise dominion over the earth. And now that's being fulfilled, not in us, not in our own good works, but in Jesus, where Adam was passive and allowed the serpent to deceive and, and his wife and to sow discord and deceit in the garden, Jesus is actively waging war against his enemies. 
And we do well to realize that if the resurrection is true, this is one of those things I mentioned, right? If the resurrection is true, what else do we have to reckon with? Well, then Jesus' reign and conquest against his enemies is true, and it's sure. That includes every dark corner of our own hearts. There's no stone that will be left unturned. There's no secret that will not be laid bare. There's no perversion of justice that will not be answered for. And the last enemy on this cosmic hit list is death itself. And Jesus' resurrection has already proven that, that, that death cannot hold him. He took the keys with him. And so just as the resurrection is a new beginning for believers, it's the beginning of the end for his enemies. Right? The clock's ticking. Every enemy has its expiration date. And every hour that God's enemies escape his judgment is an act of mercy. The resurrection is the beginning of his rule, and it's the beginning of the resolution of all things. We see this curse being undone all the way back to the beginning. Now let's pick up back in verse 29. We see the cost of believing the resurrection. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. So here Paul is counting the cost. If Christ is risen, and he is, then Jesus is the first of many who will be raised to new life. Christ is risen. He's reigning on the throne. Christians have a new beginning in Christ, and his, his enemies' days are numbered. But what will you lose? Well, here we see Paul kind of take an inventory. It's just like the first section we read, right? If Christ has not been raised, then what's all this for? Right? His point is that none of this is worth it if Christ has not been raised. The apostles were all martyred for the gospel. James was thrown from the temple and stoned to death. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was eventually executed at the hands of Nero. In the meantime, their lives were spent going from city to city, usually getting a nice tour of the jail cells there. Right? Paul says, I die every day. If the resurrection isn't true, then none of these sacrifices are worth the cost. But then we get to verses 29, and it uh, just makes you go, hmm. Um, again, I, I identify with Peter who says, Paul writes some good stuff. Sometimes it's confusing. Um, but here's the thing, right? We're, we're not here to just, let me tell you some great things. We're here so that you and I can sit under God's word. And so we're not just going to skip over this, but we are going to try and see it in context. So, so what does it mean that people are baptized on behalf of the dead? What's, what's going on here, right? There's, there's at least 30 interpretations uh, for this verse. So let me just go ahead and comprehensively answer all questions that you may have. Um, no. That's not going to happen. Um, but a good principle to follow is that when a passage or a verse is unclear, you allow the clear verses to help you interpret the unclear one. So in light of that, here's three quick thoughts. First, we want to consider the context, right? It's supporting Paul's argument. So if the dead are not raised at all, why are all of these things happening, right? So why are we in danger? Why am I suffering? And why are these people, he just says third person plural, why are these people baptized for the dead, uh, on behalf of the dead? So his point is, suffering for a lie isn't worth it. Whatever this is, it's not worth it if the resurrection isn't true. 
Number two, Paul's writing to an original audience who understands what he means, right? So we want to understand and consider the audience, right? He, he's never shy about correcting error. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 5. He like, just roasts them and says, why are you allowing this sexual immorality? Not even the pagans would allow something like this. So if this is a practice that they're doing and it's wrong, he wouldn't just, uh, that's okay. We'll talk about that in the next letter. Because then we see 2 Corinthians 2 and he doesn't talk about it there either. And thirdly and finally, we see that we, we need to consider the, the overall argument, right? So, so what is this passage about? Well, it's not about baptism. It's not about salvation. It's about the resurrection. So we should understand whatever he's saying in support of the resurrection, right? So it's not about salvation. Sometimes people like the Mormons will interpret this verse to say, oh, well, so if someone dies, you can be baptized in their place and then retroactively, now they're saved. Woo, we're good. That's not, what, that's not even on the same planet as what Paul is saying here. Right? We have no issue understanding later when he says kind of sarcastically, if Christ has not been raised, then let's eat, drink for tomorrow we die. We understand that like, that's, that's used as a support for his argument. So in the same way, he's referring to whatever this practice is, uh, these people that are baptized on behalf of the dead in support for the resurrection. So with all those things in mind, let me tell you what I think and is not necessarily uh, 100% verifiable, but... I think Paul is counting the cost. He's pointing to his own various sufferings, his own struggles, and saying this wouldn't be worth it if Christ has not been raised. So I think that what he means by people are being raised uh, or being baptized on behalf of the dead are potentially converts who are inspired to take a, a leap of faith and, and be baptized after seeing people die for the faith. There's also the possibility that there could be a pagan tradition where people were baptized um, on behalf of dead family members and things like that. But we, what we see here is Paul is not saying, why are you all, why are we baptizing people? He says, why are those people, third person plural, this kind of group over here? So with all those things in mind, I think that fits into Paul's overall argument. But if we're still not sure, then we do well to remember that Jesus turns to the thief on the cross and says, today you will see me in paradise. When the thief wasn't baptized, he's not like, hurry up, find someone to go get in the water for you. The thief wasn't baptized. Baptism doesn't save. Jesus looks at him and says, today you'll see me in paradise. So let's see that in, in, in the context of Paul's larger argument. Let's not just camp out on this one verse. He points to them and says, we're in danger every hour, and I'm dying every day on behalf of the gospel. So Paul's saying, if I wasn't sure about Christ's resurrection, I would have gone home by now. Right? I wouldn't be going from jail cell to jail cell. He writes about fighting these beasts at Ephesus, which could be a reference about uh, the, the Roman practice of making criminals fight wild animals in the arena. But it's more likely this story we find in Acts 19, where, where Paul is casting out evil spirits. He's preaching the gospel powerfully, so much to the point that an angry mob forms and is, is ready to kill him and his companions. They barely escape with their lives. And what does Paul do? He goes to the next town. He says, all right, that was fun. What's next? And he continues preaching the gospel, right? We see this with, with, the, with, the, uh, with Stephen's death at the hands of the Jews. He's the first martyr. He's preaching. He preaches the gospel and they react violently. They stone him. They kill him. Everyone scatters and you think, well, that's going to be a, a pretty major hit to the early church. No, the gospel actually gets out more. They're more aggressive with the gospel the more that they persecute them. Uh, an early church father said that the, that the blood of the martyrs is like the seed of the church. Every time we persecute them, they just, it just spreads even more. So friends, we see just, this would be the height of insanity. If, if people are dying for a lie that, the, that, that Christ has not been raised, who would ever pay such a price? Who would ever live a life of suffering and then die knowing, well, you know, this is, this is all there is, right? If there's no hope anyway, Paul says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
right? We're here for a good time, not a long time, so we might say. Uh, Paul's point is that believing the resurrection is worth the cost. It's worth the cost, even if it costs everything. A pastor and theologian by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote the following words. He he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, Early 1900s in Germany, he wrote, discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. It is in fact, it is a joy and token of his grace. Bonhoeffer would later leave the safety of America to preach courageously during the rise of Nazi Germany. And by that, I mean, he went on the radio and called out to his his fellow German citizens and said, you're being deceived. They cut him off. He called the churches and said, we've got to stand against this evil influence. He started underground seminaries where he would train pastors on the run, and later he would be executed for opposing Hitler. So here's a man who knows suffering, who knows danger, who knows the cost, and who says what? It's a token of joy. It's, it's a token of God's grace, and it's a joy to suffer. So we might think, well, that's insane, right? What are you talking about? Why are you suffering? Why are you wasting your life? You have this safety in America. Why would you go back? But Bonhoeffer understood that because Christ has truly suffered on our behalf and emerged victorious, Christians can endure suffering without fear because it's worth the cost. It's worth the cost of believing the resurrection. And then we have Lessing's ditch that I mentioned at the beginning. This idea that historical claims will never be justified belief. This idea that, well, you know, I can believe that Jesus died on the cross. I can believe that he said he would rise again. I believe his disciples said that happened. And that's all well and good, but um, I'm not going to change anything in my life about it. Right, so just, just walk with me for, for, for two seconds, right? So if the, the biblical documents we have today, which, by the way, are, are far more in number, um, don't prove that the resurrection absolutely happened, we have no way of crossing this ditch into certainty, then a great deal of ancient history, um, it just has to be jettisoned. Like, okay, well, maybe that happened, right? Plato, Aristotle, I, you know, I think they wrote some things. It, you know, if it works for you, that's great. I don't really believe they're real, but, you know. And we would think, okay, well, that, that's inconsistent, Zach. You're just, you know, this is a straw man argument. You're just propping it up and, you know, easy to kick it down. No, that's exactly Lessing's point. Here's this here's his quote. I've got it for you on the screen. We all believe that an Alexander lived who in a short lifetime conquered almost all of Asia. But who, on the basis of this belief, would risk anything of great permanent worth, the loss of which would be irreparable? So Lessing means, I believe in Alexander the Great, right? Yeah, he's a historical figure. I believe he's historically conquered a lot of places. But I'm not willing to pay the cost for that, right? I'm certainly not going to die for that truth. I'm not going to sacrifice anything for Jesus either. Right? Certainly not my moral or ethical positions, my money, my time, my vocation. Right? That's not worth it. I'll only believe it if it costs me nothing. And just like the rich young ruler who leaves Jesus sorrowful he, because he loves his possessions more than God, I think Lessing counted the cost and said, that's too high. Now, we might, wanna, we might not put it so boldly, but if we're honest, I think that's exactly what our sinful hearts want. Right? We, we want a Jesus we can hold in one hand and then have our, have our desires in the other. Right? Because if that's the case, right, and we can, we can believe it and it costs us nothing, right? then we can hold Jesus in this hand and then we can express our sexuality however we want. We can define our gender roles however we please. We can define words like conception and life in the womb in a way that supports our freedom and preference. We can demand justice for sins committed by others and cancel them while never removing the log from our own eye. And then we can come to church on Sunday and feel great about ourselves. Right? If that's our definition of belief, then we can take this book, we can smooth out all the rough edges in the Bible so that nothing, that nothing uh, pr- 
presses against us, right? Our, our sins are nothing more than inconsequential accidents, right? Whoops, uh, for which we'll never have to answer. But if the resurrection isn't true, then it's open season on anything the Bible says that makes us uncomfortable, right? Well, you know, that's, that's just on this other side of the ditch, man. You know, I, I, I don't think that, you know, my allegiance to Christ should cost uh, my desires. I don't think that I should have to uh, consider, uh, you know, my, my reputation. You know, that's, that's just, it's, it's on the other side of the ditch. But friends, if the resurrection is true, then what else in this book do we need to reckon with? The resurrection is the foundation of the the Christian faith. If you cut that out, you have nothing. We might say that we believe in something, right? We believe in God as an idea, right? But the question isn't, do you believe in God? But do you believe God? James 2.19 tells us that even the demons believe that God is one and they tremble, right? They know very well that Christ is raised from the dead. And yet that fact, right, that justified belief, if you will, uh, leads them not to rebellion, but uh, not to submission, but to rebellion. So the question this morning isn't, do you believe in the resurrection? Yeah, that's an idea. Yeah, I believe that's a historical fact. But will you believe the risen Savior who says to you, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I'll give you living water. Or I'm the living one, and I hold the keys of death in my hands. So friends, if you're here this morning, and maybe you're, you're watching online, you're not a Christian, maybe, you're, maybe your heart is troubled by some of the things I'm saying. Uh, maybe you feel a stirring in your soul or a tugging at the depths of your heart. My question is this, will you believe in the resurrected Christ or not? It may cost you everything, but if the resurrection is true, and it is, then is any cost too great? Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, it will absolutely cost you something. It might cost you everything. But Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Is there anything in this fleeting life that's worth your eternal soul? I think the answer is no. So friend, jump the ditch. (laughs) Come to Christ. He offers eternal life freely as a gift if only you come to him. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, my question is this. Christ is risen. Do you live like it? Because Paul has some some hard words for for us if if we cut out the resurrection or if we act as though, yeah, I believe Christ is risen, um, but over here in in real reality, I don't really, you know, that's just kind of over here. Here's what he says in verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Friends, may this not be true of us. May we not tolerate half-truths about God or or go on in our sinning as if Christ hasn't been raised or or live sort of with our desires and our our own uh, wants in one hand and Christ is just over here. And then, you know, Sunday morning, time to put on the Christian mask and we're good to go. May we not let those around us go through life without any knowledge of God because if Christ has not been raised, then Christians are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised. What does that mean for the people you work with? What does that mean for your neighbors? What does that mean for your family members, for your friends? If Christ has been raised, then why are we so content to treat this life like it's more important than the one to come? Right? I'm not saying these things are bad, but why are we stuck chasing the next job, the next promotion, the next purchase, the next life goal, the next whatever? You know, I re- reworked my schedule, and now you know, finally everything's optimized. I'm not saying any of that's uh, inherently wrong, but why are those the things we construct our lives around and not the gospel? Why is it so easy to do that? And I mean that for me too, right? Uh, the Bible is a two-edged sword. It's cutting me too. 
So friends, let's be a people that is shaped and molded by the gospel, who long to see God's glory more than anything else. And friend, that will cost you. It might cost your safety, it might cost your security, your career, your comfort, your friends, your relationship. Some of you may even be imprisoned one day for the gospel. But friends, if Christ is risen, and he is, then is there anything really more important? I think the answer is no. So friends, let's pray.